0: Hello, and welcome to Mr. Benson's Extraordinarium. There are many extraordinary tales of human survival out there. Put to the test, humans can often demonstrate fantastic intelligence, resourcefulness, and determination. But then there are times when the major contributing factor in a person's survival is just sheer blind luck. Some might even say divine intervention. Today on The Extraordinarium, I have four such stories. Our first story takes place in the freezing waters of the Atlantic Ocean. Second officer Charles Lightoller had finished for the day. He had completed his last rounds and had returned to his cabin, where he was performing his ablutions in preparation for bed. But before sleep would come, he felt something. Quote, a sudden vibrating jar run through the ship. something was wrong. It wasn't his first rodeo in eighteen eighty nine at the age of fifteen during his seafaring apprenticeship. Lytola had been aboard the Primrose Hill, a sailing vessel that ran aground on an uninhabited four and a half square mile island. as the beginning of the story suggests, they were of course rescued. After more time at sea, surviving a bout of malaria, spending some time in Canada as a gold prospector, then a cowboy, and then a hobo, he would return to the ocean and eventually, in 1900, join the White Star Line on the SS Medic as fourth officer. Those who are familiar with history just heard mention of the White Star Line, and you've put two and two together, haven't you? The ship he was now aboard where he felt the sudden vibrating jar, of course, was the RMS Titanic. I won't go into the bedlam that ensued as the liner, touted as unsinkable, sank, taking 1,514 of its 2,224 passengers and crew with it. Only to say that Lightoller, after interpreting Captain Edward Smith's command for the evacuation of women and children to mean only women and children, and enforced the order very strictly, even threatening men with a revolver, and calling them cowards. The revolver was unloaded, but without knowledge of this, it retained its menacing visage. The irony is, that while Lightoller would be sucked down with the ship, an explosion somewhere within the vessel equalised the pressure and allowed him to rise to the surface. The man who was so gallant and determined that men should give their lives to save women and children had, quite by an act of fate, survived. He found an overturned lifeboat and climbed aboard with 30 others. It is said that he immediately took charge and, with his knowledge of seafaring, probably saved all of their lives. Lightoller would be the most senior officer to survive the sinking of the Titanic and after being called as a witness in both the American and British inquiries into the disaster, was able to offer recommendations to improve safety, including 24-hour manned radio communications, lifeboat drills, and other things we take for granted today. I'd be rather proud if I had a story like that to tell. But there's more. During World War I, Lytola was given command of a torpedo boat, And was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross after a lengthy night battle with a Zeppelin, which had tried to bomb him. The Zeppelin wasn't destroyed, but was hit several times and forced to turn for home. There is, unfortunately, a blight on his reputation dating from his World War I service. After depth charging and sinking the German U-boat UB-110 off the coast of Yorkshire, he and his men were accused of opening fire on the survivors, and not lowering lifeboats until the convoy he had been escorting had arrived. Lightoller never spoke of the incident at length, which added to the perception of guilt. Eventually he retired, and, not being one to be away from the sea for too long, purchased the motor yacht Sundowner in 1929. This would, eleven years later, drag him once again into peril when in 1940, The Sundowner was commandeered by the Royal Navy to evacuate British servicemen from Dunkirk. Charles Lytoller and his son Roger, and a young sea scout by the name of Gerald Ashcroft, would evacuate 127 servicemen on a boat only designed to carry 21, evading a bomb dropped by a German dive bomber by waiting till the last minute, then pulling hard to port with the bomb landing alongside in the water. The character Mr. Dawson in the 2017 film Dunkirk was loosely based on Lytola. The man who survived several shipwrecks, malaria and avoided being bombed by two separate enemy aircraft in two separate world wars passed away from heart disease in 1952. Aged 78. Lincoln Hall had a passion for climbing things. Born in Canberra in Australia's snow country, Hall began his climbing experience climbing crags in the Australian Capital Territory. He would pioneer a number of routes at Barumba Rocks and when studying zoology at the Australian National University honed his skills by quite literally climbing the walls. It was with the Australian National University Mountaineering Club he had his first real mountaineering experiences during several expeditions to New Zealand in the mid to late 1970s. The club would eventually take him to India to climb Dunagiri, a peak in the Himalayas. Hall didn't complete the ascent and spent the night on the mountain. He would suffer severe frostbite that would cost him several toes and culminating in what was thought at the time to have been the highest Himalayan helicopter rescue. Nonetheless, the trip was considered a success, and Hall had made a name for himself as a mountaineer. He would go on to be the first Australian to make many climbs around the world, including the first Australian ascent of Mount Everest in 1984. Some 22 years later, and after an illustrious mountaineering career, Lincoln Hall again found himself climbing Everest. But Hall was older now, and unbeknownst to him, he was carrying with him a ticking time bomb in the form of mesothelioma, a lung disease he had gotten from handling asbestos when he was younger, working as a builder's laborer in the 1960s. On this expedition, Hall was becoming confused and beginning to hallucinate. The Sherpas spent as long as they could trying to help him, but as the oxygen started to run low, the sun set and conditions became impossible, They were eventually forced to abandon the now lifeless hall and continue their descent. On the evening of the 25th of May 2006, friends and family were informed of his passing. Mount Everest is littered with the bodies of failed climbers who succumb to the extreme conditions and many, if not most, are never retrieved. Lincoln Hall was one of the few exceptions. The following morning, a team led by American Daniel Mazur came across the body of Lincoln Hall, surprisingly animated for a dead man who had spent the night in the freezing conditions on Mount Everest. Miles Osborne, a British member of the mountaineering team said of that morning, sitting to our left about two feet from a 10,000 foot drop was a man, not dead, not sleeping, but sitting cross-legged in the process of changing his shirt. He had his down suit unzipped to the waist, his arms out of his sleeves, was wearing no hat, no gloves, no sunglasses, had no oxygen mask, regulator, ice axe, oxygen, no sleeping bag, no mattress, no food, nor bottle of water. I imagine you're surprised to see me here, he said. Now this was a moment of total disbelief to us all. Here was a gentleman, apparently lucid, who had spent the night without oxygen at 8,600 metres, without proper equipment, and barely clothed, and alive. End quote. The mountaineers, as you might expect, abandoned their bid for the summit, and stayed with the still very delusional Hall, while a team of a dozen Sherpas began to make their way to Hall's position. Hall was brought down the mountain walking a considerable length under his own steam, and was treated for frostbite and cerebral edema at advanced base camp. Otherwise, he was in generally good health. Hall would write two books on the subject, two thousand seven's Dead Lucky, which would become the basis of a documentary, and eight's Alive in the Death Zone. He would receive a letter from the Dalai Lama thanking him for taking up the plight of the Tibetan people and received an Order of Australia medal, for mountaineering. Unfortunately, the ticking time bomb I mentioned before, the mesothelioma, would catch up with him. On the 20th of March 2012, Lincoln Hall passed away, peacefully, and for real this time. An extraordinary man, an extraordinary event. Hello, Skipper. Hello, Navigator. Half a minute to go. Okay. Uh, hello, engineer skipper here. Yeah? Will you put the revs up, please? Yeah? Okay, keep weaving. A lot of those In an earlier episode, I spoke of the extreme dangers of being an airman during World War II and the atrocious mortality rate. If you survived the hit, the fire's smoke and disorientation could mean difficulty locating your parachute, or a hatch to escape through. For bomber crews, the most dangerous job was that of the tail gunner, not least because most fighter attacks came from behind the aircraft, but also because the turret they sat in was too small to accommodate a parachute, and it had to be left out in the fuselage. Retrieving it and putting it on could cost valuable time in a crisis, if indeed it could be retrieved at all. to us, right? you, down. Such a problem was encountered by Flight Sergeant Nicholas Alcomade, when on the night of the 24th of March 1944, the Avro Lancaster bomber he was in, nicknamed Werewolf, was attacked by a German night fighter and had burst into flames. Alkemade, just 21 years old at the time, was the crew's tail gunner, and after hearing the command to bail out, reached for his parachute. The problem was, his parachute was on fire. Alkemade, it seemed, was doomed, and so rather than burn to death, he decided he would prefer to die from impact, and just jump without a parachute. He turned the turret as far around as it would go, and threw himself out into the darkness from a height estimated to be between 18 and 22,000 feet. And yes, he survived. It wouldn't be much of a story if he didn't. He blacked out on the way down and so was unable to explain how. He simply woke up on the ground with a sprained leg. The best explanation put forth is that his fall was broken by the branches of pine trees, followed by landing in pillowy soft snow. You'd think that would be quite enough for one day, but the young flight sergeant had a little more to contend with. As he was found without a parachute, he drew the suspicion of the German secret police, the Gestapo, who thought he was a spy and rigorously interrogated him with the threat of execution now dangling over him. What was left of Alcamade's plane would eventually be recovered and an investigation would indeed prove he was who he said he was. And so, Nicholas Alchimade was made a prisoner of war, until being repatriated the following year. But wait, there's more. Upon returning to England, he would find employment at a chemical plant where he would be electrocuted, which, in turn, caused his gas mask to dislodge. He was working with chlorine gas at the time and would be exposed to the gas for some 15 minutes before being rescued. Not too long after that, Alchemade was sprayed with sulphuric acid when a pipe burst. The quick-thinking Alchemade dived into a nearby drum of lime wash, neutralising the acid, and while he received first-degree burns, he had gained cheated death. But he had one more survival story to add to his already awe-inspiring repertoire, when he was pinned down and almost crushed by a steel door runner that had fallen from its mountings as he walked past. This, as they say, was the straw that broke the camel's back and he decided to change careers and become a furniture salesman. He lived a quiet life from there on, raised a family and passed away on the 22nd of June, 1987 with no close calls in the intervening years of an extraordinary nature. Our final story today I have titled Three times lucky. Constable Joseph Luca of the Sydney Foot Police was at home on the night of the 26th of August, 1803, when Miss Mary Breeze came to his door to report a robbery. The thieves, she said, had taken a desk containing documents and money. Luca thought he might know who the culprits were, the population of Sydney being only a few thousand strong in those days and told Miss Breeze that he would look for the desk when he began his shift at midnight. Luca had intimated that he thought the desk might have been taken by one of his colleagues, which might explain why Breeze approached the off-duty constable at his home instead of reporting the incident at the watch house. Luca, true to his word, began looking for the desk once on duty, and indeed he found it, hidden in scrubland behind Miss Breeze's house. It was then, or shortly after, that he was set upon by the thieves in a bloodthirsty attack, where even his own cutlass and its scabbard and the desk itself were used against him. The brutal attack was fatal, and Joseph Luker became the first Australian police officer killed in the line of duty. Luker's gut feeling that some of his colleagues were involved panned out. Constable Isaac Simmons, who Luker had named as the prime suspect, along with Constable William Bladders and Constable John Russell, were indicted. So too were a couple of ex-convicts named Richard Jackson and Joseph Samuel. The three officers were let off due to insufficient evidence and Richard Jackson became a crown witness implicating Joseph Samuel, leaving Samuel, as the only member of the gang, to face the hangman's noose. A quick aside... It might interest you that while Joseph Samuel was suspected of involvement in Constable Luker's murder, it couldn't be proven, and so he was sentenced to death not for murder, but for robbery. So not only was Joseph Luker the first police officer killed in the line of duty in Australia, at the time of this recording, his murder remains Australia's oldest cold case. On the 26th of September 1803, Joseph Samuel was taken by cart along what is now George Street to the gallows at Parramatta. He and another criminal had time to make their peace with God. Then the nooses were fastened around their necks and the cart was driven away with the more humane drop method not coming into general use for another half century. Though the rope used was capable of holding far more than his body weight, the rope snapped and Samuel fell to the ground, spraining an ankle. There was a flurry of activity as Samuel had a new rope put around his neck, was put back on the cart, and the cart driven off again. This time, the rope slipped off his neck. Another quick aside, some variations say the rope frayed, but either way, Joseph Samuel two, hangman zero. The ropes, the gallows, and every piece of equipment was examined and re-examined before the process was repeated a third time. But as the cart pulled away, The rope snapped again, with Samuel stumbling and falling to avoid hurting his already sprained ankle. Joseph Samuel by this stage must have been beside himself. The crowd too was becoming restless. They believed it was an omen and began calling for Samuel to be set free. Indeed, after the ropes were once again inspected, Governor King declared divine intervention and Joseph Samuel was sent to Newcastle to work in the mines. In 1806, He and seven others escaped in a boat. His body was never recovered, and he was declared drowned. Now, there are some fantastic tales of survival out there. Some of them will definitely find their way onto this podcast. But to escape a state-sanctioned public execution by hanging three times in one day? Now that is extraordinary. You've been listening to Mr. Benson's Extraordinarium, created, researched, and hosted by me, Dan Benson. If you enjoyed the show, hit the subscribe button and continue to join me as I uncover extraordinary stories from around the globe and throughout history. Till next time, peace, love, light. Take care. Catch ya.